0: You can live out your master chef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel, connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that
1: tonight on the readout.
2: And now, after three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy. Specifically, conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power.
1: Guilty, 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 guilty. Four members of Trump's MAGA army, the Proud Boys, including leader Enrique Tario, are convicted of seditious conspiracy in the January 6th attack. Also tonight, yet another allegedly undisclosed big money gift to Justice Clarence Thomas from the same big money Republican benefactor, what is going on? And will there ever be any recourse for this Supreme Court corruption? Plus my conversation with soon to be 109 year old Viola Fletcher and her 102 year old brother, Hughes Van Ellis, two of the last remaining survivors of the 1921 Tulsa massacre, who are in town to meet with the Justice Department. But we begin tonight with the breaking news of a partial verdict in the trial of five members of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, for their involvement in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The jury found four of the defendants, including its former leader and former Florida director of Latinos for Trump, Enrique Tarrio, guilty of the most serious charge, seditious conspiracy, as well as conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And uh, sorry, to obstruct an official proceeding. Reading is fundamental. The seditious conspiracy charge alone comes with a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. The jury found the fifth member, Dominic Pizzola, not guilty on the seditious conspiracy charge and was unable to reach a verdict on the conspiracy to obstruct. Pazola is best known for using a police shield to smash in a Capitol window, allowing some of the first January 6 rioters to enter the building. All five were found guilty of the additional charges, including obstruction of an unofficial proceeding, conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging any duties, obstruction of law enforcement and destruction of government property. U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly declared a mistrial on several other counts on which the jury could not come to a conclusion. These members of the Proud Boys are just the latest of many insurrectionists who were found guilty of the high crime of Seditious Conspiracy. Six members of another far-right group, the Oath Keepers, including founder Elmer Stewart Rhodes, were convicted of the same crime across two trials in November and January. In their closing arguments, attorneys for the Proud Boys tried to lay the blame for the attack on Donald Trump, saying it was Trump's words, motivation and anger that caused the insurrection and that they were being used as a scapegoat for Trump and those in power. They reminded the jury that it was Donald Trump who famously told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by during the 2020 campaign. And it was Donald Trump who pushed his supporters to descend on the nation's capital for what Trump claimed was going to be a wild day. It can't be lost that among the more than 1,000 people who the DOJ has charged in connection with the insurrection so far, that's been a common refrain from witness after witness coming forward saying they were acting on Donald Trump's words. And while Trump has not yet faced any charges in relation to the attack and attempts to overturn the 2020 election, even as he is actively running for president again, the special counsel's investigation has been moving aggressively. As we learned last week, the grand jury in that investigation heard testimony from former Vice President Mike Pence, a sign too many. That the probe could be nearing a conclusion. And joining me now is Michael Steele, former RNC chair, MSNBC political analyst and host of the Michael Steele podcast. Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Justice Matters podcast. And Cynthia Miller Idris, professor at American University and author of Hate in the Homeland the new global far right. Thank you all for being here. Um, This is a big day, Glenn. You have been watching this trial. You've been in the courtroom. What were the reactions from those uh, as they were convicted?
3: So I wasn't there when the verdicts were announced. I was there for some of the closing arguments. And, you know, I, I actually think the best thing I heard from any attorney during closing argument came surprisingly from one of the defense attorneys, not from the prosecutors. He said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you heard statements about Donald Trump saying, we're going to go to the Capitol and I'm going to be there with you. Of course, he didn't go, but we're going to go and you're going to fight like hell. Or you won't have a country anymore and you're going to stop the steal. Now march on the Capitol. Yeah. And the defense attorney said, ladies and gentlemen, I expect those statements to be government exhibit number one in the criminal case of United States Versus Donald Trump, that is, I hope, prophetic.
1: You know what's interesting that I I, I note that in the uh, the Washington Post piece about what uh, Enrique Tarrio has been saying himself. He is actually not saying that it was Donald Trump. He's actually refuting his own attorneys. His, his attorneys are saying "Yeah, this was Trump. What Enrique Tarrio is saying, well, they were using us as scapegoats. They wanted to get Donald Trump and get us to flip on Donald Trump. That's the claims that he's making. It sounds like he's trying to sort of hedge against the potential, maybe another Donald Trump presidency. Who's maybe they? Say he could. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Who's I don't they? know. But what do you make of that? I mean, the fact is that this guy doesn't seem to be turning on Donald Trump even. Oh, no, of course not. He's, he's, too invest- to he's
4: too invested. He's too invested. What, are the, what the do whole.
1: Republicans do now? Because, they, you know, Fox News covered it very late. They, they jumped into it quite late in the right. coverage. Um, they've been very sort of positive toward um, the the insurrection, saying well, that it was just, just a normal uh, day. this is
4: just political discourse. A political discourse. So the, political the, discourse. the, answer, the answer for what will Republicans do, I, I think in large measure they're going to cue off of Trump uh who will rail against this he w- they will basically sort of obfuscate and deny uh the findings um uh, and and again remember you've got members of the house who went to the jail here in DC right. uh to support the they insurrectionists said they, they said they were political prisoners yeah. so what do you think that GOP is going to do on, on the heels of this mm. of this uh, decision, they will stand firm where they are. They're not going to peel off. Now, we'll see if any of the other presidential candidates create a little bit of a Heisman move between them and Trump. Yeah. How doubtful. Yeah. Because again, that base is
1: still hugging him and leaning into him, uh, hugging these very same people. Uh, Cynthia, let me let me read this. Because so th- one of the members, so Donald Trump has been doing this musical tribute at the beginning of his rallies. And in this J6 choir, which are people who have been indicted and jailed for their roles in the insurrection. One member, his name is William Crestman. He's awaiting trial. He is accused of leading a Kansas area group of Proud Boys and uh, telling a Capitol police officer, quote, You shoot, I'll take your effing out, as well as using an axe handle to keep police from closing building gates. So this is obviously an extremely violent group um, who, you know, are in a choir because they're a violent group. But what do you make of the fact that now we've had all of them accused of seditious conspiracy? When people are that motivated, does that deter people from getting involved?
5: Yeah, it's not deterring people from getting involved and it hasn't been deterring additional violence from the group. I think it's really important to remember too that this is a group that some of our closest allies, Canada, New Zealand, have declared a terrorist group. It's sure. a terrorist organization in other countries. So, um, they are continuing to, uh, violently plot and attack and show up at, uh, at drag, sh- uh, drag readings, you know, drag, um, show and, and anti-trans violence. We're seeing, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, plots and attacks uh, from them that I think is, is showing that there's been no deterrence here. Right. There's no uh, there's no slowing down does, of their mobilization. Does it, does
1: it slow down the risk of them though, right? So you have the leadership yeah. now all convicted, um, both in the Oath Keepers and in the Proud Boys. Does that send a message to others that their risk is too high. I mean, Donald Trump, there's no guarantee that he's going to be president again, and that he would even pardon them if he was president again. He doesn't know who these people are and doesn't care.
5: Yeah, I think it could. I think it's sort of like a -a whack-a-mole though. I think we end up in a situation where they A, start using more coded language, more meme-driven kind of communication, mobilization, the types of things we've seen with other militias, communicating in text emojis that are really difficult to to, uh, prove in court what they meant. Um, I think we're going to see more secretive, more um, back channel communication, more old school offline communication, and I think that um, you know it's they're going to be persuaded, continue to be persuaded by the ideology, and just find better ways to do it. So it's not the best way to kind of come and just arrest them all and focus our strategies on that um, on that strategy all the time. We also have to work on
1: prevention. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Donald Trump just for a moment, Glenn, because now you had the two main violent groups. There's also the three percenters or so the third sort of main violent group involved in January 6th. But now you've had the leadership of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Uh, uh, you know, this seditious conspiracy goes back to the Civil War. This was about trying to prevent, you know, the you know the seditious Southern rebels from being able to attack the Capitol. We're now using that law to convict people in the modern era. What risk does that, as the defense attorney stated, posed to Donald Trump?
3: So here is the most important takeaway from my perspective about the series of verdicts that were just handed down. Uh-huh. Enrique Tario was convicted not only of seditious conspiracy, but a whole other crime, a whole yep. other bunch of crimes at the Capitol. And he didn't even set foot on Capitol property. Right. He was outside the district. That's right. What does that prove? I would call that atmospheric precedent. You can be convicted for crimes at the Capitol, even though you weren't at the Capitol. Joy, who else wasn't at the Capitol (laughs) on January 6th? Let's see. Steve Bannon, Mike Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Roger Stone, John Eastman, Mark Meadows, Donald Trump. We've got a little bit of atmospheric precedent that all of those people I just named better buckle up because their ride is going to get a little bit bumpier now. What
1: does it mean that, you know, it seems that the 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 the, the counts that were about violence, that were about violence that day, were the ones that the jury hung on, that they couldn't, uh, or that they only convicted Pozzola on. Because as you said, Enrique Tarrio had other issues. He had ripped down that flag, the Black Lives Matter flag, off of a church. He had a, some gun cartridge he wasn't supposed to have in DC. He, was, he wasn't even there. But the conspiracy charges are the ones that seem to be sticking. What does that tell you about whether or not, as you just mentioned, a lot of people, it was a conspiracy?
3: Yeah, and the conspiracy charges are often the toughest to prove, because right. a conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people. People yep. to commit a crime and then one act, what we call an overt act toward the commission of the crime. But here's the thing. You don't enter into a conspiracy by filling out documents and getting them notarized. Right. It's a secret agreement b- between bad folks. Yeah. Right. Um, but once you can prove a conspiracy, the reach of co-conspirator liability is so Far, Yeah. Right. And that's why they were able to pull Enrique Tario into it. Sure. Even though he wasn't at the Capitol. Uh,
1: and we'll show that video again of these are the leaders they are now all either indicted or in jail or, or headed uh, to, to to jail. There they are in the basement uh, plotting uh, their, you know, they must have felt so cool in the moment. But uh, that's when keeping it real goes wrong, one might say. Um, mm-hmm. Cynthia, I am a little bit fascinated by Enrique Tario. This is a black man. He's black Cuban. Um, he's a member of a group that has been called anything from Western chauvinist to white nationalist. Uh, He also in the past has been accused of turning states evidence, Mm -hmm. being a government snitch, one might say. Um, He now is headed to prison. Which gang does he hang out with? Because I don't see him with the skinheads. I don't see him with the black folk. Blacks aren't going to take him. Where does he hang out when he's in prison? Yeah,
5: he's going to have 20 years to figure that out. Uh, so, yeah. you know, maybe he creates his own new uh, his own new <laughs> gang at this point. I mean, this is what we're seeing is that these guys, you know, there's a lot of plausible deniability in their labeling of themselves as Western chauvinists, but yeah. really they are male supremacists. They are bigots. They have, you know, they they attract a ton of people to them who uh, express all kinds of virulent racism online. And so, uh, you know, I I think we're going to have to see what happens uh, over the next couple of decades.
1: And I'm going to come back to you to ask about the politics of this. Here's a CBS poll. Like the Republican voters, do you prefer to support a candidate who criticizes insurrectionists only 15 percent, supports insurrectionists 24%. That means about a quarter of them. And 60%, those who do not comment. That's like saying, yeah, you know, 9 11, eh, let's I don't just let be it go. On the yeah. <laughs> where does this party go if they are the party of these guys?
4: They're already there. I mean, where, where, where do they go? I mean, it's, it's kind of the internal struggle that you see playing out for uh, Republicans like myself. Um, And others who are trying to figure out what threads are salvageable to sort of knit together something different uh, in the aftermath of all of this. And then those who've just completely capitulated and said, we're all in. Yeah. Um, those of us holding on the thread are just, you know, just pull out the scissors. and How many and start of go- you say
1: those? Like, there's more than one of you. <laughs> I count you and David John. Oh no, David, this, Jolly quit David the party. John is gone. David John is gone. Just you is gone. <laughs> <It's> just, <us>. <laughs> <laughs> there's an us. Trust there's an us.
4: But, it is. It's a difficult us. Yeah. It's a difficult spot for us. Um, is you know, there someone with I've got, the You know, Larry
1: Hogan. Larry. <laughs> Larry. Let's get oh, Larry on the phone because that is the thing. Is it seems to me that even for, as a law enforcement matter, and also you as an expert, what you need is someone with the stature who could go to the base of the party and say, here's this other here's this alternative thing. Now you know besides why I've been extremism. Screaming
4: at the leadership for the last number of years because more than anything else, that's what they should do. Yeah. In the past, we have relied on the leadership of the party to stand up and 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 pull us back from the from the precipice. Yeah. Now the leadership are the first ones over.
1: Yeah. And that's that's the problem. And, and so, Glenn, uh, if I'm watching this trial as a, a person who was a part of that broad conspiracy, who should be the most worried right now? Is it Mark Meadows like, who, who's, who, or is it Trump?
3: Well, look, at some point, the Department of Justice has to move on from the boots of the insurrection, the foot soldiers of the insurrection, up the hierarchy, yeah. right? Up up the uh, the criminal food chain. Let's start holding accountable some of the political folk who were responsible for organizing funding, inciting and directing the attack on the Capitol. I don't know. I I appreciate Merrick Garland coming out and saying we got more boots of the insurrection. Yeah. How about now you do the suits?
1: It it, it would be nice. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. would like to see not just the grunts go to prison, and the people who directed them sit back uh, and eat bonbons while they're at home. Uh, Cynthia Miller, Idris, thank you very much. It's always great to have you on. You guys come back more often. You know, Michael we Steele, my brother, Glenn <laughs> Kirster. This is, it's like getting the gang back together. This is a lot of fun, and now we've added Cynthia to the gang. So thank you all <laughs> for being here. Appreciate you. Up next on The Readout, what started off as a whiff of corruption uh, on the Supreme Court has grown into an outright stake as we learn more about Justice Clarence Thomas's financial ties to billionaire Harlan Crow, The Readout continues after this.
0: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future.
1: We have yet another story about billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow helping Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas pay for stuff. ProPublica reports that Crowe paid the tuition for Thomas's grandnephew, who Thomas considers his son, and who he had legal custody of, to not one, but two boarding schools. Now, we don't know how much Crowe paid, but ProPublica estimates it could be in excess of $150,000. In a statement to ProPublica, Crowe said that Justice Thomas didn't ask for the money. Additionally, he told ProPublica that he has long been passionate about the importance of quality education and giving back to those less fortunate, especially at-risk youth. At-risk youth? According to a Thomas friend, Crowe paid the schools directly on behalf of the justice, and that Thomas was not required to disclose the tuition payments to the schools because his great-nephew did not fit the definition of a dependent child under the Ethics in Government Act. Interestingly, the Thomases did not reject the payment for their grandnephew. Just to recap, Mr. Crow has reportedly paid for Clarence Thomas's private jet rides, his yacht cruises to lavish locations, and bought Thomas's mother's house, where she still lives, rent-free. At this point, Crow has allegedly dished out hundreds of thousands of dollars, nearing millions, for Thomas's personal benefit and to fund Jenny Thomas's political organizations. Thomas has repeatedly failed to report these payments. Joining me now is Richard Painter, chief White House ethics lawyer in the George W. Bush administration and professor of law at the University of Minnesota, and Jason Johnson, professor at Morgan State University, MSNBC political contributor and host of A Word with Jason Johnson podcast. Thank you both for being here, Richard. I do want to start with you because, you know, at this point, the amount of money that Harlan Crow has dished out to um, this uh, justice, you know— it, He's dishing him out, like, another salary. Supreme Court justices get paid a little north, I think, of $200,000 a year. He's getting that from Harlan Crow as gifts. How is that not a crime?
0: Well,
2: I don't know whether it's a crime, but we've reached the point in the United States where to be a real business player in Washington, D.C., you need to have at least one Supreme Court justice in your portfolio. (laughs) And uh, what we've got going on here— is uh, uh, clearly a, a, an attempt to ingratiate himself through a friendship uh, with the justice over many many years, and whether it's buying his mother's house or paying the tuition bill, which was Justice Thomas's obligation if he chose to enroll uh, the uh, boy in a school that was Justice Thomas's obligation if he was the uh, custodial um, the parent or the uh, he had the, was the guardian. And he had the uh, opportunity to make those decisions. Um, and then if he doesn't want to send his uh, grand and nephew to a uh, public school, because for whatever reason he doesn't like the public schools, that's okay. But he needs to pay the bill. And if he doesn't pay the bill and Mr. Crowe pays it for him, well, then that's just a gift to Justice Thomas. It goes right on the disclosure form. Uh, and I dealt with this in the White House uh, under President Bush. I uh, told people very clearly, if somebody pays your kid's tuition at a school, that's a gift to you. Just put it on the disclosure form. And if they're a lobbyist, uh, we're going to get you fired. Uh, I mean, if you don't put it in the disclosure form, uh, you could commit a crime because uh, if you file a false disclosure form, that's a false statement. Uh, false statements, uh, intentional false statements uh, to the government can be prosecuted under 18 United States Code 1001, the false statement statute, the same statute that Robert Mueller went after quite a few people on. So, uh, this needed to be disclosed. I mean, it's a slam dunk. This was an obligation of the uh, justice who made the decision to put his grand nephew in this uh, private school. He uh, had the, the legal guardianship, the authority to make that decision, and the responsibility to pay the costs that came along with it.
1: You know, Jason, I'm struck by the term at risk youth. Because I find it hard to uh, imagine that someone being raised by a Supreme Court justice who is flying all over the world and going on uh, you know, expensive yachts uh, and dining with people like Harlan Crow, maybe in his Garden of Evil, um, is an at-risk youth, right? That doesn't sound like an at-risk youth. And I'm just going to read what Julia Ayaffi tweeted. She said, once again, I ask you to imagine what would happen if instead of Clarence Thomas, this were happening with Sonia Sotomayor and the billionaire weren't Harlan. Crow. It was George Soros. Dream with me, Jason. What would that be like?
7: Oh, well, everybody from Jim Jordan to Mitch McConnell would be screaming for her head. People would be protesting outside of their house. But but this is the thing, Joy. This is what makes this particularly disgusting. We already know he's corrupt. We already know he's bought. We already know the same thing is happening with John Roberts and his wife doing lawyer recruiting. We know that, that, that there's money in the pockets of all these people. But we talked about this before when Harlan Crow was first revealed to be the bad guy behind the camera, the Bond villain, whatever. It's one thing to take Clarence Thomas on expensive trips. Because from an ethical standpoint, Thomas could have said at some point, hey, I don't want to take trips anymore. But once you are paying for my mama's house, and once you are paying for my son to go to school, you can't tell this man no anymore. Harlan Crow is literally has his hands up Clarence Thomas like a puppet. And the idea that anyone could even remotely pretend that Clarence Thomas was his own man on the court when this is happening is absolutely impossible. Every single Democrat besides Ocasio-Cortez, every single Democrat should be screaming to get Clarence Thomas to get off the bench, to talk about the inherent corruption that we've got on the Supreme Court right now, because this is not going to be the last reveal, Joy, because as we saw in the ProPublica article, um, his, his grandnephew son said, oh, by the way, we took a trip to the Baltics. There's other <laughs> trips coming that we yeah. probably haven't heard it about yet. I'm just waiting to find out that he, like, paid for colonoscopy surgery, something else <laughs> like that, because clearly Harlan Crowe runs that entire family.
1: Oh, him owning an organ of his would be even uh, perfect. Um, this is what Ron Wyden, the chairman of the Finance Committee, tweeted. He said he's he's pushing for answers. He says that he wants Crowe to answer uh, questions. He wants them by May 8th. If he doesn't comply, I will absolutely explore other tools at the Finance Committee's disposal to shed more light on what appears to be blatant corruption. I don't know what those things would be, but I think to that point, Richard, it almost doesn't matter if Crow specifically had cases before the court. He's a big donor to Republicans like Greg Abbott, who banned abortion in his state. He's a big co-founder. He's a co-founder of Club for Growth, which has gotten all of its asks um, from Citizens United on on this court. In the past three decades, they've publicly contributed $14.7 million to federal and state candidates and candidate committees. At least three, 13 million of the 14 went to Republicans. They're getting Republican outcomes. It doesn't Need to be specific cases, right? And let's go back to Scalia. Justice Scalia, when he died, he literally was staying for free at a West Texas hunting lodge owned by a business person whose company had recently had a matter before the Supreme Court. Is this not just simple corruption that Clarence Thomas learned from Scalia and is now practicing it for himself and his family?
2: Well, this has been going on in this court uh, for quite some time. And uh, at least we have the Ethics and Government Act, which requires disclosure of these gifts. And it's a law, and they'd be comply with the law. And if we'd have one of the liberal justices do this, I can guarantee you that uh, Jim Jordan would have had him impeached in the House this morning, and they'd be walking the article's impeachment over to the Senate right now as we speak. Uh, and uh, the same standard should apply to everybody. Uh, this is unacceptable. We've never had uh, something this is serious on the Supreme Court with a single justice receiving that many Uh, gifts, uh, undisclosed from the same person. uh, This dwarfs by far the incident with Justice Fortas in 1969, uh, where he was persuaded to resign from the court because of a a single payment from a businessman uh, that he actually returned as soon as that businessman was indicted. Uh, And yet he was still forced off the court, and the Democrats wouldn't support him in the uh, U.S. Congress, even though they knew that would give Nixon an extra seat uh, wow. nomination on the U.S. Supreme Court. But we've come a long way since the more bipartisan attitudes of the late 60s and early 70s, and everyone's just going to dig their heels in and focus on does he agree with me on abortion or not, instead That's of it. focusing on ethics. And i got to say, when it comes to ethics, uh, this Supreme Court is like an out-of-control fraternity. It's an animal house uh, yeah. of ethics. Okay. Uh, without the college dean, who's there to throw them all out, and uh, the uh, yeah. Congress uh, has that uh, ability under the impeachment clause of the Constitution, but they're not going to use it that they wouldn't throw out a president impeach and convict a person who can yep. uh, inspire in an insurrection. What are they going to do about this? Nothing.
1: Last Last word to you, Jason. Why should any of us respect any decision out of this court knowing how corrupt they are? Last word.
2: Because
7: we shouldn't. And this is the way that Republicans have been trying to take over our country. As you've mentioned on TikTok, Joy, as I've said on the air, this is all part of the overall corruption of the government that Republicans have been working through for the last 20 years. Nothing, nothing that comes out of this court that has the stench of Clarence Thomas or Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, which was a stolen seat, or Amy Comey Bear has any legitimacy when it comes to American law. And we should be functioning that way from now on
1: or Roberts at this point, Richard Painter, Jason Johnson. Thank you. Still ahead. The chokehold death of a homeless man on the New York City subway is now ruled a homicide, but it's also raising serious questions about the homeless crisis and vigilantism. We'll be right back. Jordan Neely was a 30-year-old man who some New Yorkers may remember. Here are some videos showing Neely as quite the Michael Jackson impersonator who performed around New York City subways, transit hubs, and streets. Neely was also homeless and struggled with mental illness, factors that many believe contributed to why Neely is no longer alive. On Monday, Neely was allegedly yelling and pacing back and forth on a subway train in Manhattan until a stranger, a former Marine, who has not yet been named— put Neely in a chokehold on the subway train floor. We're about to show the video and a warning. It is disturbing. The incident that you see here was shot by Juan Alberto Vasquez, who was on the subway train at the time. As you can see, Jordan is being held down by another rider, locked on the ground while two other passengers restrain him. Vasquez said the chokehold lasted for about 15 minutes. Neely was unconscious on the car floor when officers arrived and died at the scene. The cause of death has been deemed compression of the neck and ruled a homicide, according to the medical examiner. The man who put Neely in the chokehold was taken into custody and later released. No charges have yet been filed against him or anyone else in the car, for that matter. New York Mayor Eric Adams, a former police officer, responded to the incident as well as the backlash.
8: I was a former transit police officer, and I responded to many jobs where you had a passenger assisted someone. And so we cannot just blatantly say, blatantly say what a passenger should or should not do in a situation like that.
1: Assisting someone. Joining me now is Reverend Al Sharpton, host of Politics Nation and the president of the National Action Network, and Shams DeBaron, a homeless rights and housing activist. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Shams, I do want to start with you first. Welcome to the show. Tell me what you make of the way that this young Michael Jackson impersonator uh, was killed.
9: Ooh. Well, and my brother Sharpton—that's my family right there. Um, we've we go way way back back. Um, and you all have to forgive me if I get too emotional. This brother was someone who. Was failed by the foster care system. It's failed by so many layers of government. This is a brother who I know what it's like to be a foster child, to be in the streets, and to try and find a way to survive. This is a brother who was tr- trying his best to survive and did it to. Entertainment through performing. I knew him from that aspect. Didn't even know he was homeless. But I've seen so many people have to resort to becoming street performance, like Brother Jordan was. And when you're that young and you don't have help, it causes so many.
1: Yeah. I hear you, brother. I do. I hear you. And, and you know, Rev, it's giving Bernie Getz, I have to be honest with you, the, this whole incident, the fact that this man was not arrested, the uh, the fact that we're not getting his name, you know, it's giving Eric Garner—it's uh, giving a lot of things that we really should not have to remember. I want to play for you two pieces of sound. This is Governor Kathy Hochul's first reaction and then her updated reaction to this killing.
10: People. Who are in our are you know, homeless in our subways, have many of them in the throes of mental health episodes. and that's what I believe are some of the factors involved here. And you know, people, there's consequences for behavior. I'm really pleased that the district attorney is looking into this matter. as I said, there have to be consequences, and so we'll see how this unfolds, but uh, his family deserves justice. It became very clear that, you know, he was not going to cause harm to these other people. And the the video of three individuals holding him down until the last breath was snuffed out of him, I would say was a very extreme response.
1: Well, somebody must have told her her first reaction was inadequate. Reverend Sharpton, your reaction to all of this?
8: Well, it clearly is something that is above being disturbed. This is. In my judgment from the film, showing the lack of any kind of civility and a legal reaction, whether this young man, Brother Jordan, was troubled or not, he should not be sentenced with death. You were talking about a life was taken and it struck me, which is why I immediately put out a statement. He's on the subway impersonating michael jackson who was close to me as you know michael used to come up to national action network i preached michael's funeral and uh and and you combine that with eric gardner where we have a state law against chokeholds so what is bothering me is the press is looking into the jordan family what happened to jordan what happened to his family what happened to the guy that would choke him for 15 minutes we don't even know his name What is the background of this guy that was clearly behind Jordan? He can't say self-defense. He was not at risk. So to let this go forward in any way is to sanction vigilantism in this city and therefore would have national ramifications. We cannot let this go. We will support whatever the homeless advocates are doing because this is really giving legitimacy to those that can say, "I can get up on a subway if somebody's making noise and do what I want to do, including k- causing their death," this cannot happen. This cannot be allowed. And I've talked to the DA's office; they must investigate and prosecute to the full extent of the law, or we're back to Bernard Getz, and if you want to be more recent, to uh, to uh, Eric Garner. This is a fusion of both offenses. And I think and with, the Bernie uh, gets case for our, our brother.
1: You oh, go, no, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say that you know, you know, this case was 84. And, and that's supposedly that's vigilantism. And as you said, in the case of Eric Garner, supposedly in 2022, the Supreme Court of New York upheld the fact that police can't do a chokehold. How does this guy get to get away with doing a chokehold that police can't even do? And what about all those other people standing there watching him die? How is that not a crime? They didn't help. him. There was no one else well, on the train. Well, no one was at risk. Well, let, not only well, not, not only he didn't is.
8: help him, you have three guys holding him down. What about the yes. guys holding him down that aided and abetted the a chokehold that resulted in a murder? Exactly. Exactly. And, and let
9: me say that let me say Please. this. There is something to be said about media who knows this individual's name and has yet to release it. There's something to be said about media who is depicting this person as an ex Marine, as if to say that he served the country. So it's all right. We're going to protect his identity because somehow he's a victim. When in reality, what he has done is illegal. So I also want to center this. He's an ex-Marine, but he's an ex-Marine who is
1: trained to kill. Does this make it? Does it make it more dangerous, sir, for people who are homeless? You are an advocate for the homeless. This seems to me to be an open door because people get nervous on the subway. They see homeless people or they're panhandling. This seems to me like it's an open door to vigilantism against people who are already vulnerable.
9: We've we've seen already people who have been killed while homeless, killed, murdered. We just dealt with that last year in several states. So. Yes, of course, this sends a message. it could send a message that it's okay,
1: yeah,
9: and that's why we have to, as the reference say, we have to hold this individual accountable, because with the medical examiner declaring this as a homicide, yeah, a homicide is a crime, yeah, so it's- we can't let him not go through due process. And be held accountable for what he has done to this individual who posed no imminent danger
1: to anyone, to those people there. To anyone, to anyone on that train. People were standing there quite casually. He was definitely, clearly not a threat. Reverend Al Sharpton, Shams DeBaron, thank you both very much. We will keep an eye on this case Uh, coming up. Thank you. I recently spoke with two survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre and the founder of Justice for Greenwood program about their ongoing search for accountability and justice. That interview is straight ahead. in the HBO series Watchmen brought renewed attention to one of the worst atrocities in American history, the Tulsa Race Massacre. It was this month in 1921 when a white mob descended on the all-black neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street, destroying one of the country's most prosperous black communities and killing hundreds. Today, more than 100 years later, the last three known survivors are still fighting for justice, including brother and sister Hughes Van Ellis and Viola Fletcher, who were just one and seven years old, respectively, when their hometown was massacred. They came to Washington this week to meet with the Department of Justice as part of their ongoing fight for reparations. This week, I got to sit down with with the two of them, along with the founder of Justice for Greenwood, DeMario Solomon Simmons. It is such an honor to talk to you and to meet you in person. I want to start with you, Mother Fletcher. You remember the Greenwood District before, and you remember that day. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that.
10: Well, it was a very scary time to be saying to do all of this and seeing so many things happening, like people were running and getting shot and killed, and we had to be gathered up with the family and leave town. So... Uh, it's something that haven't left me. I can still think of it. It seemed that I can't sleep at night, so that reason.
1: And Uncle Red, you're the baby brother. You yeah. were at, at 102. So you grew up, you you don't remember the massacre. You no. grew up outside. Tell us what your childhood was like after the massacre. After
11: my, uh, in my childhood was pretty rough. Uh, uh, I raised a family and I had to go from town to town to look for work. I, I didn't have no I didn't have no skill, point. no, nothing but skill work. So a lot of people ask me, why are you moving red uh, Some of them say, oh, you move here, move there. I said, well, i do that so I can find work because I work on one job when it run out. I had to go go to another town, find another job.
1: But I managed to raise seven kids though. So. But you all had to share crop after, after living in a beautiful home and having a nice life, you had yeah. to share crop afterwards. Yeah.
11: We go from one pound to pound sharecropping just to make a living. Yeah. My dad, he didn't have no skill. That's all we had.
1: Mother Fletcher's is going to have a hundred ninth birthday. Happy birthday in advance! Next yes, week right, is going to yes. be your 109th birthday. Yes, sir. And you know, Demario, on that same day, um, you all are going to be still fighting for reparations and repair.
12: Absolutely. And, Joy, thank you so much for caring so much about our lovely survivors and this issue. Unfortunately, on her 109th birthday, we're going to be back in Tulsa County District Court once again as the city, the chamber, the state, the perpetrator of the massacre are going to be trying to get our case dismissed. They're going to look at these beautiful survivors who are telling you what they experienced, and Mother Randall is not here. We have three of them. And they're going to say they don't deserve anything, the community doesn't deserve anything, and this case should be kicked out. You know, as you know, a year ago, we thought we were able to move forward with this case. We're right back here another year later. And we know that the defendants, their strategy was to have these beautiful individuals. They want them to die, point blank. They was hoping that during this delay that they wouldn't be here any further longer. But they both told me they're going to be here for the long haul. Uncle Red said he has 28 more years left.
1: You said you have 28. You said 28? you will continue to fight. And Uncle Red, you, you told me earlier before this interview began, you're going to fight until you get justice. That's right. I'm fighting see I had two bunnies. Born of
11: 1921, drafted to the United States Army, there but I survived. I, I I'm I'm pretty fortunate to be here to tell that. But, but I think you should have been gone. I know some guys not as old as I am. <laughs> I'm here.
1: Yeah. I'm still here. Amen. I'm here to pay. And Mother Fletcher, at 108, you're still fighting. What does justice look like to you?
10: Well, everything is beautiful and rebuilt and restored. And, you know, we just think it's just time now that we have justice on all of that, to where we can live all our life, that type of life over again as a grown-up. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Did, ha, have you ever received an apology from the city of Tulsa? Have either of you? No, no, no,
10: no apology. No, no.
1: No. That is stunning to me. Well, that You would have survivors. You know, one of the, the, the uh, arguments that people who oppose reparations make is they say, well, who would we make the reparation to? These survivors are gone. Which They say that with regard to enslavement. But in this case, you have three survivors, two of whom are sitting right here, right. they could make repair to, and they're still saying no.
12: They're still saying no, and they utilize the survivors and other descendants, their stories their names and likenesses to raise $30 million to build their own historical center that they could use for cultural tourism. This is their words, and they wouldn't give one penny of that money to the survivors of other descendants. They won't share any of the revenue. We've asked them many, many times, and so the city, the county, the chamber, and the other powerful elite in Tulsa are still utilizing, they're still burning Greenwood down. They've gentrified all the land. It went from 40 blocks. Now it's one half a block. And everything that's built up, all the high-rises and the, the hotels and the banks and the law offices, they're all owned by non Greenwood residents or non black people.
1: And, you know, Mother Fletcher, what— What would you like to see happen in Greenwood? Because if you could get something back for the people of Greenwood, the people you grew up with, what would you want?
10: The people that's entitled to it. Mm -hmm. I think they should get something back. You know, it may not be what they had, but it could be something better. You know, there's always room for improvement. Yeah.
1: <laughs> always. So it's always, you know. mm-hmm. And, you know, Uncle Red, uh, you all have had some incredible experiences. You went to Ghana and became citizens of Ghana, so you're now dual citizens with African that's... names and all of that yes. wonderful grandeur. That
11: was wonderful. Yeah. Yes, and my was. nephew, I, he's over there fighting for us right now. We're yeah. with the young people.
1: Absolutely. And you all have been able to meet the president?
11: Yes, met the president, met the chief. <laughs> yeah, they made the chief first, then. And I was surprised to know that it was going to make me a citizenship. So that was surprising. Yeah. So.
1: Well, we, I am excited. This has been one of my proudest moments to be able to meet the two of you. I, I, I have watched your hearings. Uh, I've watched you from afar and have really prayed that I would get the opportunity to finally meet you mm-hmm. in person. And so this is a wonderful you day for me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Keep fighting. Uh, I'm keep You said if it takes little, 28 years, okay. 28 years, I'm here. We're here for him. We you. We hope <laughs> on May 10th we Listen, can move forward with this case. Absolutely. Well, we believe in you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. And that is tonight's readout.